Welcome to episode 169 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Lorna Harris. She's the scientist and program lead, Forest, Peatlands, and Climate Change for Wildlife Conservation Society of Canada. And she's an ecosystem scientist who works on ecology, hydrology, and biogeochemistry of peatlands, wetlands, and forests. And she co-authored with Dr. Kelly Biaggi, a review of Suncor's McClellan Lake Wetland Complex, operational plan for the Fort Hills, Fort Hills Oil Sands Project for the Alberta Wilderness Association. Listeners, I apologize. That's a big mouthful, but it will all become clear in due time. Welcome to the interview, Lorna. Hi there. Happy to be here. Well, this is a very fortuitous, the timing is fortuitous because uh, this project has been approved by the Alberta Energy Regulator, correct? Yes, it has. Yeah. Although it has now been reconsidered. Right. Uh, we are going to, as we get go through your report, I know the listeners are going to be, how could, how could the AER possibly approve that? How could they approve that? How could, that's going to be a question. And I want to, so before we get into the uh, meat and potatoes of your, uh, of your report, I want to talk about how the AER works because uh, uh, regular listeners will know that after the Imperial oils curl leak and spill that was uncovered, well, was publicized and revealed in early uh, February, uh, I began an investigative report, deep dive into how the Alberta Energy Regulator works. And I was in Alberta last week, did a number of interviews, very, very revealing interviews. And I wanna talk about that first so that listeners, you have a lens through which to process the information that that uh, Lorna is going to share with you, because it'll it'll help you answer the question of how and why. So here we go. Back when the Alberta was really ramping up its oil and gas industry in the fifties and and starting to think seriously about regulating it, it had four priorities for for oil and gas or for the regulator: the growth of the industry, increase in production, attracting capital creating jobs, and generating government revenue. Environmental protection and reclaiming and remediating environmental liabilities were at best a distant fifth. So whenever uh, the regulator uh, assesses projects like this, they start with those prior priorities. And that's not unusual. As Lorna, Lorna has international experience, and she'll talk about how some of these, you know, approaches and principles and objectives are shared by regulators around the world. But here's the thing that you need to understand is Alberta claims to have one of the best designed regulatory regimes in the world. And there was a 2013 study done by Worley Parsons uh, that was that was commissioned by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers that, that did the assessment. The thing is, it was about the design of the regulation, the regulatory regime, not the performance. And that's where what I want to talk about. Because there is a principle that is, the AER is fundamentally based on, and that includes the legislation and the regula regulations, it's called discretion. It's a simple word, but basically what it means is if you have rules 
in your regulations, then it's then the interpretation of those rules is open to discretion. Discretion all the way from the CEO of the AER down to the subject matter experts at the bottom. All have tremendous discretion on how those rules are applied. And I've had this, I've had this confirmed by former uh, AER employees like senior toxicologist uh, Mandy Olsgaard and by environmental uh, law professors. This is a big problem, not just in Alberta, but it's acute in Alberta. And so as Lorna is describing the, the problems that she and her colleague had with this with the Fort Hills uh, project proposal, and you're wondering, how could they possibly do that? It's because the AER begins with the premise that it is there to make development happen in the oil and gas industry, in the oil sands industry. How does it do that? It massages the rules. It bends the rules. It interprets the rules just the way the, the company needs in order to make this happen. And generally, what happens is they they may back off, and, and Lorna will explain to us how this has been uh, reevaluated by the AAR, because they get caught. Is because the, there's a public spotlight that gets shone on a particular project or a leak and a spill, and the re regulator goes, oops, we made a mistake. Now we got to go back and fix that. But otherwise, it would have gone ahead. So, Laura, I apologize for my long, windy explanation of this, but I, I think this is really important for listeners to to understand. And maybe I'll just before we get into the details of the of the project and your report, would you agree with with the way I kind of laid it out? Is is that your perception of how the AER works? Maybe other regulators. Um, I don't have any direct experience with the Alberta Energy Regulator, um, but prior to moving to Canada, I did work for the Scottish EPA, the Environment Protection Agency. So I was working for a regulatory agency. Um, and as part of that work there, I reviewed many um, uh, regulatory uh, authorizations for uh, wetlands in Scotland, uh, reviewed many impact assessments, um, and there are criteria to to work to uh, regarding the legislation and the policy for for those um, uh, developments that will be impacting those wetlands. Um, and it isn't unusual uh, for uh, as part of a planning consent for there to be a condition of planning that the company or the developer has to produce a report, produce a plan, produce an assessment, an additional assessment that wasn't originally provided um to 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 the satisfaction of the the regulatory authority um as part of that planning consent so it isn't unusual to have those things come after a consent is given um but it is you know there's there's a certain spectrum there if if a project is deemed high risk then you would consider you know maybe we need to have that information prior to giving consent and I think for the case we're going to be talking about today, I think that's the situation here where the report is not entirely up to date with, with the issues that we need to be considering for peatlands and oil sands development in Alberta now. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the Alberta Energy Regulator has made a decision last year. It was last September, so it was before we did our review. Um, but I don't think it's it's had all of the the detailed information it needed to to make that decision. Okay, you're you're being generous, and I understand you work for a regulator, so you speak from the inside. I will point out that one of the 
uh, I can't name him because it was on, on background, but I talked to a uh, an engineer who's worked in the industry and he's from Scotland and he worked in, in the Scottish industry. And he said, it's not the same as Canada. The, the, the regulator there does is uh, not as captured and not as corrupt as it is in Alberta for what it's worth. That, that was his take on it. And uh, when I and I went, different. sorry, go it ahead. It's certainly very, very different um, in terms of the impact assessment process here in Canada. The the regulatory um, authority is very, very different here to Scotland. So yeah, right. And and it may it may offend your scientists' ears to hear me use the words like captured and corrupt, but I'm actually reflecting the language that I've that I've uh, heard in inter my interviews with. You know, very well-known regulatory experts like uh, Dr. Jason McLean uh, from the University of New Brunswick. This is this is not like I'm, you know, I interviewed Greenpeace, who would be expected to use that kind of language. This is scholars talking about the Alberta Energy Regulator uh, in those kind in that kind of language. So there is a qual. It appears that there is a qualitative difference between the system that you worked in in Scotland and the one we're talking about for Alberta. Yeah, I think, um, for instance, if this case, the McClelland Lake uh, complex had come across my desk um, it, in Scotland, it would have been a much more controversial issue. It wouldn't have been a simple, yes, go ahead. This would have been significant damage to a high integrity peatland, uh, probably, well, Scotland, complete, very rare, <laughs> very unusual. So it would be very controversial. And the um, the requirements to to meet the you know not causing damage to the other portion of the fen, which is proposed as part of this this development, um, based on what I've reviewed, I basically would have given the same response as I would have done as you know when I worked for the Scottish EPA as I am now working for Wildlife Conservation Society Canada as a scientist. So, right, uh, it, uh, fair comment. And uh, so let's let's get into exactly what. Uh, your report did say, and maybe we know that, okay, so the, the Fort Hills uh, uh, oil sands project, it's an existing Suncor owned oil sands mine, and it was proposed to expand mining activities into the McClellan Lake wetland complex in 2025. Maybe you can give us just a brief overview of what the project proposed. Sure. So it has a long history. I think it originally, it was proposed back in 2002. Um, and when it was originally given sort of a go ahead, but then it was revoked. Um, so essentially they want to uh, construct an oil sands development uh, within half of this McClelland Lake wetland complex. So the wetland complex includes a lake, but it also has a, a very large patterned fen, peatland. Um, and, you know, peatland is basically just to go back a step, <laughs> essentially dead plants that have built up over thousands and thousands of years. Um, so this particular peatland, you know, has been developing for the past 10,000 years. Um, they're huge waterlogged environment and it stores a massive amount of carbon because of all of that buildup over those, those thousands of years. So they're proposing to basically destroy half of that peatland um, to build their, their oil sands mine. Um, and the requirement they had at the time, uh, a while ago, was that to do that, they had to ensure that they could maintain the structure and function of the other half of the peatland so that they could 
not damage and disturb this this incredibly beautiful patterned fen. I mean, these are these are very rare peatlands. It's it's unusual, um, you know, to find them in the northern hemisphere. Still, they're not. There's not a lot of them left in Europe, um, and in Canada, we're very lucky to have some of these high integrity peatlands um, remaining. So they are proposing to destroy half of it and to protect the other half through a <laughs> complicated cutoff wall and water management system. Um, but again, I think there are some issues with that proposal. I, the idea, okay, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear that they want to use a wall is Donald Trump's proposal to build a wall between Mexico and, and the US. I, I mean, it just, it, that seems silly. This seems silly. How can you put in in such a uh, delicate, environmentally sensitive area, put up a wall between your destruction of one half of the of the the peatland and and pretend that that's going to preserve the other half? I, as a non scientist who knows nothing about that, that on the face of it, prima facie, it just seems undoable. You're, what, am I right or, or wrong? Um, it's certainly a challenge. Um, the peatlands themselves, you've got to understand the structure of a peatland and what, what it actually is. I mean, these are very, very wet um, environments, very wet ecosystems. The peat itself, and particularly in fen peatlands, can actually be very sloppy peat. And this peatland as well can be quite deep. It's up to eight meters deep in places. Um, so to build a wall in there, you're going to have to remove half of that peatland, which means you're going to have to drain half of that peatland first to safely remove that peat. Then somehow put the wall in, which is you know going to have to be deeper than the peat that's there. And to safely do it, you, you know, eight meters of peat is not just going to stay standing. <laughs> it's going to slowly slump and flow and slop down. Um, so you know the engineering challenges there are pretty intense. Um, the wall itself is it's very big. Um, in the report, it's around 13 kilometers in, in length, um, like very deep, 20 meters deep. Um, again, because the peatland itself is eight meters deep at, at its maximum. Um, and very wide as well, because you can't just have a, a straight wall holding back all of that water and all of that peat. That's quite a, a heavy, dense, um, uh, you know, big volume of water to hold back. Uh, so there'll be berms either side as well, um, which again widens the the that wall. So I think it, it's around 100 meters in width um, at the top. This wall. So this is a massive structure um, to protect this the remaining bit of peatland. I, I want to ask you a question that came out of an interview I did with Dr. Andre Sobolewski uh, uh, last week, and. He is a scientist who specializes in um, um, tailings ponds, mining tailings ponds, not just oil sands, but others. And back in the in the 90s and into the aughts, he worked in Alberta and the, the tailings ponds. One of the points he made was the, the entire oil sands operation has disturbed about 900 square meters of peatland. And there's all, you know, sorts of assumptions that it'll just be reclaimed when, you know, the legislation says it has to be. He says, we've never, nowhere in the world, have we tried to reclaim uh, peatland and other, you know, sensitive environment, environmentally sensitive areas at this scale. It's just never been done. 
and we just kind of assume that we'll figure it out when we when we get there. And I would like to get your take on that. Uh, yeah, it's true on on this scale. Um, the All Sands has destroyed a huge amount of peatland in Alberta. Um, that's a huge amount of carbon has already been lost from these ecosystems. Um, and in terms of restoration or reclamation, um, because they have to pretty much start from scratch, um, you know, after they've uh, finished with the the oil sands mining, they they have to create a peatland. So these ecosystems, as I said earlier, they've been forming for thousands of years. This is a very slow process, um, a very complex process with lots of different feedbacks operating within that ecosystem. And the overall results, you know, especially for these patterned fens, we can't recreate that. That's it's just not possible. There's no example of anybody recreating a patterned peatland um, of that same quality anywhere in the world. Um, even recreating the, you know, other peatland types such as the bogs, which are a, a slightly different peatland type, a little bit easier potentially to to restore. There's been a lot of research and work done on that, how to do that uh, for the peat extraction industry. Um, but even then, uh, for the oil sands situation, there's a huge problem with the contamination of the landscape itself, um, with salts in particular. So a lot of the efforts and research, again, a lot of money has been spent trying to research and to um, into methods to create these, these peatlands. Um, they have huge problems with salt within the systems and they can't get the same freshwater acidic systems. They can't get the same uh, fens, which, you know, like the McClelland Lake, which is rich in calcium. They don't have that. They end up with, with saline fens, which are present in Alberta. They, they These ecosystems do exist here, um, but they're not extensive. And it's kind of... Um, they operate very differently when it comes to carbon cycling. So they have very different greenhouse gas fluxes. Uh, they, they don't store the same amount of carbon. And it's not clear with the research we're seeing whether they're actually going to continue to take carbon from the atmosphere and store it as the peatlands that were there originally were doing. So it's a very, very challenging um place to, to restore peatlands because of the, the contaminated landscape itself um, and just the way that that landscape is, but also just because we can't create new peatlands. <laughs> it's just, it's almost impossible. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the concerns that were addressed, uh, that were raised in your report. And one of them that, that stuck out for me is lack of modeling for potential impacts to groundwater quality. And this is one of, I think of, modeling uh, I, I interview uh, economic modelers all the time and the amount of modeling that canada does for oil and gas for electricity compared to the us is is quite a bit less uh both in quantity and the capacity we have to do that and so this one really stuck out for me i mean you, here you are here here you know suncor is uh, proposing a really really significant uh, disturbance to this this ecologically sensitive area, and it hasn't done any modeling or insufficient modeling. It has to... done some modeling. Um, so the modeling itself, you know, is very detailed, very complex. Um, the The report that you know we've reviewed is <laughs> thousands of pages. Uh, the modeling is just part of that. Uh, the modeling itself is 
based on available data. So all models that we do for um, for wetlands, for to look at water flows, to look at water chemistry, um, they have to be based on real data from the systems themselves, um, which we have for some uh, peatlands in Alberta. And we have some of that data for the McClelland Lake uh, complex as well. Um, the challenge, though, is that these systems have been, ex been in existence for thousands of years, and to model these data, they can change considerably from one year to the next. Um, and the models, from what I've seen in the in the reports, um, some of the data is is only from a few years ago, so 2019, 2018, um, for some of the water level data. And then they they use model data in the models as well, which is okay as a scientific practice, but to to convince uh, somebody that this is you know without. Um, any risk, you know, to damage the the remaining peatland is not great. And even in one of the models itself, it doesn't take into account the the nature of the peat itself, the the consistency of the peat, and how that may change with changing water levels as well. So, um, it can become, you know, more dense, or it could become, you know, it, the consistency changes, which changes how the water flows through the system. So, the models don't incorporate that either. That's very difficult to do, so I, I completely understand why that might be excluded. Um, but certainly, in terms of you know the data for the models, there's there's only a few years um, included. Okay, um, and I guess that would uh, your observations then apply to this other concern: insufficient observational data for hydrological model calibration. Can you explain that to us. Um, so yeah, so it's basically having that field data to support the models um, so that you know what you're seeing in the predictions from the model uh, is actually real. Is that actually true to what we would expect? Um, and th that's not sufficient. Um, so they haven't got so they haven't got enough uh, actual data over a long enough period of time, so they make assumptions to replace that. Is that correct? Essentially, yeah, they have they have um, Hundreds, I think there's 300 hydrographs within the appendices of the report, and they've got lots of wells. They, you know, they've they've put in the the work to do this, but it is only recent. It has only been over the past few years, so they've only got a few years of data. Um, and you know, the to do the modeling, you need for for this this wetland complex, you need to do it for a little bit longer to make sure that you've captured. The full range of conditions that might might come across to make sure you haven't just got data for like one strange year. <laughs> right. But I, I understand that, you know, that this project first was proposed or it, it popped up on the AAR's radar uh, in 2002. So it, yes. it's not like they haven't had some time to be thinking about this, collecting data. So instead of having, you know, two, three years of data, they could have had 20 years of data. Would, would 20 years have been enough? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, even if they put in wells, you know, eight years ago, <laughs> that would have been a huge help. So, yes. Right. Okay. So, you know, big company didn't get it done for whatever reason, but they didn't get it done. So they don't have the enough data and that's fair, fair enough. Now, uh, uncertainty and risk with proposed conceptual stage, quote unquote, water management plan. What What's the problem there? Um, it's the details that they've provided for the construction of the wall and their water management system. 
So their, their water resupply system. So how they're going to um, maintain the water flow into the, the portion of the fen that's going to be on the other side of the wall. So basically the wall is going to cut off the upstream uh, portion of the fen. It's going to cut off the water flow that, that is existing to the downstream part and also to the lake. Um, so they have to then pump water through a system to, to sort of mimic that natural flow. Um, so, but what they've got for the construction of the wall, it's their own words in the report. They say it's at the conceptual design stage um, and that they're figuring it out basically, which it, you would expect a few more details <laughs> in the report at this stage. I, I hear echoes of adaptive management in conceptual stage. Uh, it, it does sound uh, as though they are saying they can figure it out. And I, you know, I appreciate the confidence in the engineers that they can <laughs> they can do this. Um, but there are some very high risks with uh, building the wall, with managing this water resupply system that they even note themselves. They um, they note that there, there could be issues that they may have to get water from the Athabasca River, for example. Um, which has a completely different chemistry to the, the fen. And to put emphasis on how important maintaining that chemistry of that fen is, it's so important. If you change that calcium level, um, you, you have any um, salt intrusion into that system, you change the ecosystem. So you, you're no longer maintaining the structure or the function of that fen. So it's really important that they get that right. Um, but yeah, they are essentially saying they can do it, but they're not sure of the details yet. Well, details are an interesting thing in this in this uh, business, because in the course of, you know, recently the AR came under a lot of criticism after Curl. And so incidents have been popping up in their on their compliance dashboard that wouldn't have been there otherwise, according to, you know, the experts like Mandy Olsgaard, who's you know former uh, employee of the AR. But they're popping up now because the AER is now airing on the side of caution, right? So we have things like we would never have known about, you know, where 5.9 million liters of water released by Suncor that had the, the total suspended solids were more than double the allowable limit. Okay, so now this becomes an incident, whereas before it probably wouldn't have. And so I've been trying to get information out of the AER. And I went to Dr. Kevin Timoney who's, you know, 40 years experience in, in this industry. Uh, Dr. Lauren Fitch, who's a retired ecologist, fish and, and uh, uh, fish habitat expert, I think it is. And the AER kind of says, yeah, yeah, nothing to see here. You know, it's just it's just water. And 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 I actually talked to an engineer, a tailing spine engineer, and he said, well, you know, the, the turbidity of the Athabasca River will dilute the total suspended solids. And yeah, it's probably nothing really to worry about. Then you go talk to the scientists and they go, well, no, 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 hang on a second. You can't say anything without data. If you don't know what chemicals are in there, if you don't know, you know, sure, maybe the fish swam away. What about the invertebrates mm -hmm. that can't swim away? How were they affected? How This is so much more complex than, than, than we know and we're, that the, the public discussion touches upon so much more complex and the industry in the AER I don't know if they're having these conversations behind closed doors because they're not transparent it used to be I am told that much of this data would be released to the public 
And so scientists like yourself could then look at the data, check the assumptions, flag concerns. We'd have a public discussion about it. Even if it wasn't in the newspapers, there was at least some discussion somewhere. And now the AER is like a closed book. When I emailed them and said, you know, Dr. Fish gave me some questions to ask for data that, that you know, you would, would require. And they just said, no, it's an ongoing investigation. We're not giving you anything. We're not releasing anything. And, you know, two years from, from now, they'll release it. Well, who cares two years down the road? It's already, you know, out of the public consciousness. Nobody's talking about it anymore. And, and this seems to crop up over and over again. How can we have the conversations about what we can do and what we can't do if we don't have the data and we, don't, we aren't raising these concerns? And it seems like Suncor kind of went in here, you know, to some extent unprepared. And they don't have the data. And they haven't thought, but by the way, your comment about the confidence of the engineers, I worked in the industry for five years. I talked to engineers, hundreds and hundreds of oil and gas engineers. And the one thing they do not lack is confidence. There will, there is never a more confident profession on the freaking planet than oil and gas engineers. They think they can solve everything. And they actually do a lot of times. I mean, give them credit, but you know, that's their, go, that's their mindset. That's their go-to position. Oh yeah, no, well, we'll engineer a solution. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. Anyway, a little bit of a rant for me, because as a journalist and as a, you know, someone who is supposed to be acting in the public interest to shine a light on some of this stuff, I'm appalled by what I'm seeing. So anyway, end of rant. I'll just get you to respond. Uh, yeah, um, the, I mean, the going back to the, the recent Curl Lake, um, oil sands, tailings, pond leak, I mean, that is... Uh, just a perfect example of why we're concerned about the risk of this wall and of maintaining the pumping system, of maintaining the water chemistry along a 13-kilometer wall. <laughs> it's, this is a huge system. And if you can't do this for, I mean, some of these tailings ponds are huge, but if you can't do it for the tailings pond and you have issues of other leaks with like the sediment uh, leak, because one pump happens to fail or one logger stops working, um, then you know that's that's one of the risks that could cause significant damage to the the unmined portion of this fen. Um, it it just takes something not working, one thing in the system, to have a knock on effect. And although they have a a very typical sort of monitoring plan um, in the in the report. Um, and a very typical sort of risk assessment, um, all of the right words in there highlighting, you know, the, when these triggers happen and then this will, you know, um, trigger a, a water management response or a management response, I think is their wording. Um, I've seen many, many of these risk assessments and plans, but what was lacking was what they would actually do. What would actually happen? Um, you know, what is going to happen if the wall fails structurally somewhere down the line? What are you going to do? What is the mitigation response to that? What's how are you going to manage that? Um, what happens if, you know, the pumping system fails um, or you can't take, you know, where's the water source going to be? Is it going to be from the Athabasca River? Is that going to be downstream of the Taylor's Pond leak and <laughs> the sediment leak? And then you're going to put that into the fen or is it going to be upstream? And what's the chemistry of the Athabasca River relative to the fen? Is that actually going to be a realistic solution? So it was those details, those actual realistic solutions were not in that report, which is what I wanted to see in the report. My goodness. Um, there, 
Dr. Timoney has written a book, and I interviewed him about it a few episodes ago. It's called The Hidden Scourge, uh, in which he detailed... Now, some of these leaks uh, and spills came from... The, the leaks would have been from uh, from wells, in conventional production. But a lot of them were from oil sands production. Some of them were never recorded. They never made it into the AER data. Some of them were recorded incorrectly. Like the data, for instance, what what tweaked him to to do the book and to begin his investigation was he was seeing where the AER would record a a tailings pond spill, and the amount of tailings of of, of toxic water uh, that was spilled was exactly equal to the amount recovered, as if it you know it went into the it somehow they they pumped it out back out of the peat you know, and put it back in the tailing spot. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. And not only that, it happens every time. It's like somebody just checked the box. They don't, we don't know if that happened, but we just assume it happened. So we're going to put it in the report as if it did happen. And this is where, after you read his book and the voluminous uh, web stuff that he, he that scientists like you can go through, is a little daunting for a non-scientist like me. But nevertheless, the point is that we... You've raised these issues. What happens if this if this happens? What happens if that happens? And I think after Dr. Timoney's work, we can't trust the AER to tell us. We can't. If is there a wall failure uh, down the road in McClellan? You know, in the, in this complex, will the AER tell us? Will they post accurate data? Will they do the proper inspections? Or will they rely on on Suncor to do self reporting? You know, all of those, and we have no way of knowing. And and you know. Based on Dr. Timoney's work, I wouldn't trust the AR as far as I could. I could if I could. I couldn't throw them. I well, I throw them in McClellan Lake is what I do with them. But you know, it's really appalling to see what we are told. But once you dig into the data, what's actually happening on the ground, which means that we should approach a proposal like this with extreme skepticism. Would you agree? Um, I approach it in terms of what the report is, is showing me with the science, with the data, um, and based on, on, on that analysis, there's just not sufficient information in the report to, you know, there's not sufficient evidence to, to show that they can actually protect that FEN. Um, in terms of trust for the Alberta energy regulator, I think the curl tail and leak is the perfect example of where the, the trust has just gone from, the, the indigenous communities who have been downstream of a leak, who haven't been told about the leak, um, the, and the AAR hasn't gone through proper processes, from what I understand. If those things have not worked for this tailings leak, then it, it is a, a fair question. Can we trust the AAR to, to do this properly for the McClelland Lake uh, complex? And you know, that's evidence shown us that we probably can't. We we need more trust, um, more trust in the uh, which we're not getting right now. A couple. We'll we'll wrap up our interview with a couple of with observations on a couple of points here, and that is we haven't talked about how the this complex is an important stopover point and breeding ground for many bird species that you know migratory bird species from across North America, and of course this is an, another point that was made abundantly clear uh, two weeks ago when 
uh, indigenous communities and First Nation uh, uh, leaders were testifying before the House of Commons Environmental Committee is how important this is for indigenous communities in the region. And I understand, you know, in the area of the oil of Curl was, you know, there's like 50 communities somewhere, somewhere around that. Uh, and, and so they rely on, they rely on this ecosystem for food. They rely, rely on it for medicine. It's part of their, their, their culture. Uh, and was that, were the birds, migratory birds, and were social cultural issues for indigenous communities adequately addressed in the proposal? Uh, in the report, the, they did include uh, traditional um, uh, knowledge for, for the ecosystems. So there, there was a um, an entire section on that. I didn't review that uh, fully. That's that's not in within my my range of expertise to to look at indigenous knowledge. Um, but they were part of that process. But I do understand that, you know, the close connection um, that Indigenous communities have to these ecosystems. They highlight, you know, how they use these ecosystems. They use McClellan Lake um, to go um, to harvest berries. Um, they use it for hunting, um, fishing, you know, various different different uses that are very important um, culturally, socially, economically. Um, and you know, most of those, those things have been, are being put at risk. Um, if the, the water levels, the chemistry of the fen changes, it's a down, cause it's downstream of the, the oil sands mine, but yeah, anything that happens in the upstream part is going to affect the downstream part. And one of the bigger concerns I also raised in, in my review, um, was what they're going to do decades from now. So this wall, this water management system has to be maintained for decades while they're, they're doing the oil sands mining. Um, but then also there's the question of what they're going to do, you know, in 20, 30 years from now. Are they, are they going to continue maintaining this wall? Is it structurally going to last for that long? Is the water pumping system going to be able to be maintained for that long or will it degrade? Um, one of the things that they did say in the report that they would consider removing the wall <laughs> and connecting it again with the reclaimed landscape for, for the oil sands uh, mine area, which raised huge concerns for me because, as, as I said earlier, a lot of the reclaimed uh, wetlands and peatlands that they are able to, to sort of restore on these landscapes are quite high in salts. And these ecosystems are going to be, these constructed ecosystems are going to be upstream from this, this fen. So if you've somehow managed to maintain the chemistry and the water levels for decades for this fen and somehow managed to maintain its structure, its ecology, its carbon function, then you're going to risk it all to remove the wall in, in decades. I think we've got to, instead of putting off that risk for that long, uh, we have to plan for that now to actually really think about that now because it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to push well, that down the line. <laughs> and, and this is not in your area of expertise, so I'm not going to ask you to comment on it, Lorna, but I'll, I'll comment on it because I've done a number of interviews on this. Uh, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, the International Energy Agency came out and said that we are they were forecasting peak demand for uh, ground road transportation fuels, primarily gasoline and diesel, would now occur in 2025. So 
uh, that's 50% of global demand for oil. That's um was a that's set off like a bombshell in the in the industry because what that means is I mean here's one scenario how this could work out and why it's relevant to our discussion today. So let's assume that uh, peak demand occurs in 2025. Uh, decline doesn't start immediately. There's always a plateau. It could be two years, five years, seven years, but it's not 20 years or 30 years. Plateaus generally are you know like three to five years. So by 2030, likely we're starting to face decline in cons global consumption of oil. So what happens then, let's just assume for sake of argument that consumption is uh, 110 million barrels a day at peak. And suddenly by 2030, you've got 108 million barrels of consumption, but 110 million barrels of supply chasing it. What happens? We know what happens. Prices fall. And then... By 2035, now you've got 100 million barrels of uh, a day of demand. And by 2040, you've got 75 million barrels of demand. Once it's peak, it's not coming back. And there's a, there's a, a, a very likely scenario where prices fall, oil sands companies' revenues fall. Investors are already requesting 75% of all free cash flow. And Suncor has promised 75% plus 50% of the remaining 25%. So 87.5% of all its free cash flow goes back to shareholders in the form of higher dividends and share buybacks. Where's the money to reclaim these? Where's the cash going to come from 20 years down the road or whenever? The, the, the scenario of the, you know, there is a scenario where this asset gets stranded and it's never reclaimed. And basically that the, the McClellan uh, Lake wetland complex is just, is, is perhaps abandoned. It becomes an environmental disaster. And, and again, that's not your area of expertise. I'm, I don't imagine you dealt with it in the report, but I'm flagging it here because this Alberta has a habit of, of always, you know, it's, it's, it's expansion oriented and consequences down the road be damned. We'll just kick it down the road. Eventually, hopefully, we'll find. You know, we, we just assume that there will always be more revenue and and an expansion of the industry, and, and that means revenue to fix this kind of stuff. This is as an inflection point in history for this industry, and it it still is not being addressed. And I can see that with all of the issues that you flagged, they only work if there's money to fix them, and if the money dries up, there is no fix. And that's a that's not a, a worst case. That's a doomsday scenario. It's Where, it's very true. We see that for for many industries. So you don't have to be an expert in the industry itself to to know that there's going to be a reduced demand for oil. That's been reported. Uh, we know that's going to happen. And particularly with um, you know the government push and increased incentives for critical minerals for. Uh, batteries for electric vehicles as we shift to greener energy. There are many, many issues with um, critical minerals and peatlands and <laughs> and whether that makes any sense from a carbon and climate change perspective. And I'm pretty sure we could do an entire other episode on that. Um, but in terms of the oil demand reducing, it is going to reduce. That's That's the reality, I think, of where we're going. And I think there is a very real risk of um, this not being, you know, the McClelland Lake complex not being managed well in the future, 
uh, because of that. And I think we need to have guarantees if we're going to spend all of this, the company is going to spend all of this money on this very complex wall and water management system to protect the spend and then monitor it for, you know, the next decade or so. And then and it also sort of mitigate and, um, you know, manage any issues that they have. Um, they need to to have a clearer plan for what they're going to do down the line than what's currently in the in the report. It's it's currently not sufficient. So. The regulations, um, and the name of it just escapes me at the moment. But anyway, oil sands companies are supposed to uh, post security against future liabilities. I, we're going to play a little game here. Take a guess at how much money has been posted by oil sands companies uh, against future uh, reclamation uh, of liabilities since 2014. Just take a guess. I'm not going to guess at a number because I have no idea, but I know for sure from people I've spoken to, experts in this area, that there are big liabilities right now for the oil sands region, that there is, there's not sufficient funding to cover the reclamation costs. I know there's issues of orphan wells and you know, you can't live in Alberta and not be aware of these issues and you can't right. be a, a scientist like me <laughs> and not be aware of these issues. So, but I wouldn't know a number specifically. Well, I know it <laughs> and it's a dollar, $1. Imagine all of the expansion that's taken place since 2014. In 2014, there was $82 billion of capital expenditure in the oil and gas industry. Most, I think 60 some billion of it went into Northern Alberta into the oil sense. $1 against future reclamation in the last 10 years. That's that's the kind of situation we're, we're, uh, we're up against. Now, we're going to close out the interview, Lorna. What has happened in the, just the last, I mean, it was last week? What, was this project put on hold by the AER? What, where are we at with that? Uh, the Alberta Wilderness Association uh, sent in the, the review and their report uh, based on the review um, and have asked uh, the AER to reconsider um, uh, the decision and the, the response from AER is that they are doing so, um, that they are reconsidering. Um, whether that is part of a, just part of a formal process or if they are really reconsidering, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I guess we'll find out um, when they, they come back uh, on that. Well, I'll bet you a donut that it is not a substantive reconsideration because that's not how history would suggest that that it will not be. But I guess, you know, in fairness to the AAR, we'll wait and see what they come up with. We'll follow the story. You can look for uh, future reporting from Energy Media on this story uh, on our YouTube channel and either in a short energy takes or in a longer uh, video uh, an expert interview on video. Uh, Lorna, thank you very much for this. I uh, the, the deeper I get into the AER, how it operates and how it has operated and how it operates uh, with respect to the oil sands, the more concerned I get. It, it we're, we're in a, this is a really difficult situation. I think your report uh, is a little peek behind the curtain into some of the issues that the industry and the AER need to grapple with far, far better than they have to date. So thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me.